Welcome, everybody, to Modern D Philosophers, a podcast hosted by this cat right over here. Hey, everybody, it's Daniel Lobel. That's right, I go by Daniel now. Big, big news. And welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a great week. Hope everything's going a-okay. Um, this episode is different than most of them in that it's not a comedian or a performer. It is a rabbi, a Hasidic rabbi. And, uh, you know, I had a pastor on at one point. I figured, I'm a Jew. I should have a rabbi on, not just a pastor. And it's not just any rabbi. It's a rabbi who is a best-selling author uh, with a new book out called The Joy of Intimacy. Uh, and I read uh, a good portion of it. I'm not... Uh, a good reader, but I will finish the book. And it's very enjoyable and very interesting. And this rabbi has a lot to say on the subject of intimacy that uh, is quite, quite intimate. Mmm, baby. Let me tell you, this rabbi and I, we get intimate. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a lot of good advice. All right, let's cut the music there. And by the way, by let's, I mean. I'm just going to cut it. That was Johnny Dodds, a little music from Johnny Dodds, one of the great jazz clarinet players, a personal favorite of mine. Anyway, when I recorded this podcast, I felt like I I took the funny dial down for two reasons. One, because I was talking to a rabbi, and there's, you know, this feeling to be respectful. But more so, too, because every time I made a joke, it didn't seem to land. And I wish I would have kept making the jokes, because when I listen back to it, and hopefully you'll notice this, too, when you listen to it, there's something really funny about my jokes getting no response. (laughs) And I think he almost wasn't thinking about, oh, he's trying to be funny right now. I think he was just taking it all very literally from me. Um, and I guess I, I'm sometimes sarcastic where I just throw in little lines and uh, people usually stop and laugh. But the fact that he just keeps going, there's something kind of beautiful about it. And there's these moments in the show where I say a joke and it's just totally like moved past. And I, I find that personally very quite tickling, if you will. It made me laugh. So... All right, so this is a Hasidic rabbi of the Chabad movement. And if you heard last week's episode, I had a comedian on, Mandy Pellin, who's also from the Chabad movement. So I feel like that's a pretty good prerequisite to learn about what Chabad is before you tune into this show, where I talk to him about the Chabad Rebbe, who is probably one of the most major forces in American Judaism, probably the most major force in American Judaism post-World War II, who sort of reshaped Judaism around the world. So he was a big deal. And and I talked about him with Mandy, and Mandy described him as the Grand Wizard Rabbi. And these two interviews were recorded roughly a, a year between the two. And in that time, um, I, I read the book Rebbe. So I had some like knowledge going into this interview that I didn't have in the last one where I felt like I kind of knew a little more what I was talking about. But uh, yeah, that's that's a little... So if you haven't heard the Mendy Pellin one yet, 
I would go and listen to that one and then come back. Not that this one isn't good in its own right. It's fantastic. But uh, you'd, you'd kind of, to use a little Yiddish, I think uh, you'd hop what's going on a little better in this one. Uh, if you had that understanding of what Hasidic Judaism is and the, you don't need it, but it's nice to have. Anyway, uh, maybe I'm just trying to get you to listen to two episodes for the price of one. Huh? Maybe it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm a pushy podcast salesman. Yeah, listen to two, listen to five, huh? What, what, you got, you got something better to do? Eh? Okay. So, <laughs> cracking myself up. Uh, here's a, uh, an interview I did with Rabbi Manus Friedman, author of the book, The Joy of Intimacy. And by the way, and this is not a criticism, God forbid, of the rabbi at all, but I think this this podcast, I think he says the word intimacy more times than I may have ever heard the word intimacy ever combined. I mean, he says the word intimacy a lot. I think we may win if there's an award for podcast episode which mentions the word intimacy. You know, it's also interesting. I, I had this whole thing where I'm like, should I put out, I have two interviews with Hasidic Jews. Should I spread them out um, or should I put them back to back? And like the idea of like spreading them out is like, I think people, there was some part of me that's like, people are going to start thinking this has become a Hasidic podcast. But that's crazy because like, how many times have I put like white people, white people, like, yeah, white people back to back to back. Nobody thinks it's a white person podcast or women back to back. I wish I had more women on the show. I'm trying to get more female guests. Uh, but I was like, yeah, that's crazy. I should, I should be able to. And then the advantage of putting them back to back is, like I said, you can listen to one and then you, you know, it's still fresh in your mind. So you have a better understanding of the second interview because you're like, okay, I get what Chabad uh, movement is now. I get what uh, Hasidic Judaism is about now. Anyway, so I just opted to do them back to back. I hope you're okay with that. And I don't know why I had to tell you, but I felt like maybe I should give you a little behind the scenes. How the, how the structuring of these podcast episodes, I don't just put them out. I plan it. I'm like, you know, I'll give them a little of this spice. I'll give them a little of that spice. And I try to make uh, a wonderful stew of listening in your ears. That's a terrible um, analogy for what it is. It's a stew, a, a listening. All right, look, without further ado, except, of course, for the intro song, here's my talk with the wonderful Rabbi Manus Friedman. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. I'm here with Rabbi Manus Friedman, uh, first rabbi I've ever had on the show. I, I said it correctly, right? Manus? Uh, yes, perfect. What is it? Does it have a meaning? Of it means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's Russian or Yiddish or I, I don't know. Did you ever? Did you ever have any curiosity where it came from? Why did? Why you were named Manus? Or oh, I know who I was named after. So. I'm oh. not the first one with that name, but oh. but it's unusual. It's a rare. A grandfather? or Yeah. Okay. And uh, where are your family from? 
From Russia. Okay. From the Ukraine, actually. Uh, and you were, were you born there or? I was actually born on the way out. Just as they were leaving? Yeah, in, in Prague, Czechoslovakia, in a DP camp. In a, so, oh, wow. So I'm, I'm homeless. <laughs> what year was that? About 1946. 1946. Wow. Uh, so, so earliest childhood memories were they there or here? Uh, we left. Uh, we left there when I was three. So I, I don't really think I remember. I imagine. What does it look no like in your memory. imagination? Do you have a specific? Uh... Well, from what I know, which probably created the memory, we were in a in a hotel. That was the DP camp. And we were up high on some, I remember dropping a toy out of the window. But I, I'm not sure if it's a memory or... What was the toy? A, a stuffed something. Something stuffed, all right. Yeah. And then coming across, I remember everybody being very sick, nauseous. So what are the first memories that you have that you're sure are memories? Uh, the place we lived when we arrived. Where was that? A coal cellar. Oh, wow. In, yeah. And where was that? East New York. And how big of a family? At that time, there was three of us, three children. And a fourth came pretty quickly. So, uh, yeah, we started from the bottom. Yeah. A coal cellar. So what, is it filled with coal, or is it just at one point it was used for coal? No, it was a room right off the coal, you know, the furnace. Mm-hmm. So we would get wakened by uh, the landlord shoveling the coal into the furnace. It was probably pretty dangerous to live there. Yeah. Fumes and everything, but we didn't know about that, so we stayed healthy. What did your parents do? My father was first a bus driver, and then he was the uh, custodian for the yeshiva building. Mm-hmm. Again, from the bottom up. Right, right. I imagine you went to yeshiva as a as a child, which yes. if people don't know what that is, that's re- religious Jewish school. Yeah. I was educated by Chabad. Okay. I went to Chabad school. And, uh, you know, when you graduate, you're expected to take a position somewhere in a Jewish community and offer your services. and So that's what I did. And we ended up in Minnesota. St. Paul, Minnesota. Nice Jewish community. And and that's you, uh, but not your parents or, no, or brothers. No, just. No. So you grew up in the world of Chabad. Right. And, uh, and this was a pretty exciting time, I would imagine, for Chabad, because the great uh, Chabad rabbi, the Lubavitch Rebbe, was alive and, uh, and building the movement at the time. So, yeah. Uh, so your father came here as a, a disciple of his? No. So so tell me that story. We got to know Chabad, or my parents got to know Chabad in Uzbekistan, where they were running away from the Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. So they were living in, uh, in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and there was a large Chabad community there. They were running away from Stalin. <laughs> Everybody was running away from somebody. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we, we fell in love with it. So, so your parents, were they religious Jews before that? Yeah. But they just weren't of the Hasidic persuasion? Of the Chabad, yeah. So they were they were followers of, of the Vilna Gaon at that time? Or? No. 
Or they, they were already Hasidic, or what? Yeah, but not Chabad. Got it. Okay. So Chabad, can you explain to the listeners, because I have more education than probably most people uh, who hear us talking, can you explain Chabad to, to people? Chabad is one of the branches of Hasidus that took off uh, in the in the village in Russia called Lubavitch. So it's Lubavitch, Chabad, same thing. Mm-hmm. And it revolutionized Judaism. Uh, first of all, it was very outreach-oriented. This was not a parochial project. This was Judaism for everyone. And today we see, you know, it really is for everyone. And um, when we came to America in 1950, the Jewish community was basically in despair because the loss of European Judaism meant that it was over, finished. You know, it was great while it lasted 3,000 years, but it's over because it's not going to happen in America. The only group that didn't have that attitude was Chabad going to be great, we're going to start all over again, and it's going to be even better, because in America you have freedom, you can think freely, you can think globally, you're not so uh, shtetl-minded, mm-hmm. and it was going to be wonderful. So naturally, we gravitated towards that. And so your, your father was, uh, you mentioned a custodian, was was that at a Chabad yeshiva? It turned out to be a Chabad yeshiva, so I ended up going to a Chabad yeshiva, and it was great. Okay. Very good fortune. So, so this is pretty exciting, and I, I have some experience with Chabad myself, wonderful experience, and um, and I also read the book Rebbe by Joseph Telushkin. Great book. Which was, uh, I highly recommend to people, if you want, it's about, you know, the founder, well, not the founder, but the last great rabbi of this movement who was an exceptional, uh, exceptional human being. So I assume that you met him. Oh, yeah. What was that experience like? Yeah, nobody, nobody. It wasn't like we were buddies, you know? Yeah. You didn't go out for sandwiches? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but there was there were 10 years, nine years, in the 80s, where the Rebbe's speak, uh, talks during the weekdays was broadcast. I don't know if that even is the right word. But it was it was seen around the world through satellite hookup. Mm-hmm. This was before cable. So I was asked to do the translation, simultaneous translation. The Rebbe spoke in Yiddish, I translated into English, simultaneously. And uh, it, that was, that was a, a huge honor yeah. to do that. And now, looking back at it, I don't know how I did it. It's it's humanly impossible. <laughs> the Rebbe spoke quickly on any kind of topic, no warning. <laughs> wow. There were no notes beforehand, you know, where you can prepare. And it was like four hours. So it was it was something special. Do you have tapes of these? Yeah. So what was that experience like? Did you meet with them beforehand or afterwards or anything? Nothing. Okay. You can do it, do it. And that was it. That was it. How old were you? I was in my 30s. Did you ever have private conversations with him? Very brief. We would go we would 
visit with the Rebbe on our birthday, or before you got married, or if you had a really urgent. So, but it was very brief. Got a blessing, a little piece of advice, that was it. So the Rebbe was able to see uh, 30 people in an evening, three times a week. Because he was able to keep it brief and get to the point. Did yeah. you ever did you ever want to have like a, a long conversation? No. Why not? I can't imagine what we would talk about. What have I got to say? Was there any advice that he gave you that stuck with you, changed your life? Quite a few. Would you share? Um yeah. When I was in yeshiva, I asked the Rebbe for advice on how to remember what we're studying, because my memory was not. And the Rebbe said, you have to learn with more joy and enthusiasm. So it's not your memory that's failing, it's you're not enthusiastic enough. And that changed everything. Yeah. Instant analysis. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. So you went to school there. You grew up in it. This is a very exciting time. Um, the Rebbe was kind of the, the captain of this movement, and he was sending people different places around the world to, to spread Judaism. And you were assigned to Minnesota. Yeah, captain is the right word, because the Rebbe actually worked for the Navy. He came to America on a work visa. And he worked for the Navy in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So he often said, you know, people ask him, why don't you come to Israel? And he said, I was trained by the Navy. The captain is the last to leave the ship, mm. not the first. <laughs> <laughs> you got orders from the captain. You're going to Minnesota. Yeah. Actually, I asked. That's what, you know, people looked around and they uh, considered a few places and mm-hmm. asked the Rebbe, which one? Did you ever have doubts that this is what you wanted to do? No. Never? No. I couldn't wait to get out of yeshiva to start start working, start doing something. Now, that's the most exciting thing. To start your own branch of Chabad, right? Your own, it's a Chabad house? Well, it's a franchise. A franchise. <laughs> Starting a new movement. Okay. And, and, and you were one of four in the end, or were there more kids after that? There were eight. Eight. And did they also all continue on uh, and become Chabad? Every one of us. Okay. Uh, and, and so you were spread around. Where did they wind up? One brother wound up in Tzvass in Israel. Okay. Another one wound up in Kansas City. Another one in New York, working in the publishing house. Another one working for the youth organization in Brooklyn. And one who was very famous because he's a great singer, Avram Fried, who does the same thing, but in song. And he's your brother? Yeah. Oh, wow. So he shortened? Yeah, he thought he could hide. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm familiar with him. I think he's probably the the biggest uh, Jewish mu- musical act, in my opinion, anyway, that I can think of, uh, in, in terms of religious Jewish musical yeah, act. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Wow, so so pretty pretty amazing. So you wind up in Minnesota on the uh, assignment of the Rebbe, and uh, are you married at this point? Yeah, you didn't go until you were married, but uh, it was a year after our our marriage. Was it an arranged marriage? What? 
I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess every marriage is arranged, right? But <laughs> somebody's got to arrange it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I arranged myself. Okay. <laughs> no, the, the the way we do it is it's an arranged it's an arranged introduction, but nobody arranges a marriage anymore. Right. Right. God arranges a marriage. Right? Yeah. Always. Yeah. Match made in heaven. So you met your wife through who? I don't remember. Really? Yeah. But, you know, it came time. Start, you know, settle down. How old were you? 21. 21. Okay. And uh, we moved to Minnesota with one child, with a baby. And then we had 13 more. You didn't want to have a big family? (laughs) You wanted to keep it small? 14? Yeah, I'm I'm one of eight. My wife is one of seven. So zero population growth. (laughs) (laughs) We just replaced ourselves. Is there any feeling when uh, when one, you said one brother got to go to Israel, one brother went to Kansas City, did you say? Yeah. Is there anything like, ah, I went to Israel. Is there any feeling of that? Like, uh, No, but I keep wondering about Minnesota. (laughs) What do you mean, still? Yeah, why does anybody live there? You don't like it? Too weather. cold? Yeah. But it's a nice community. They have a big mall. Nice people. <laughs> oh, yeah. The <laughs> ultimate mall. It's a great representation of America, where the biggest thing is is a mall. Yeah. We have the mall. We had Mary Tyler Moore. Uh-huh. We had Bob Dylan. And I want to ask you about Bob Dylan, because you wound up becoming his rabbi, right? Uh, I don't know if I was his rabbi. So it says in my we, notes. We anyway. were acquainted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were acquainted. He would he would visit. Is that because he was local to Minnesota or yeah. yeah. Obviously he lives in California. Mm-hmm. But he would come to visit his mother and his brother. So he would come by for Shabbos. It was nice. Uh, was he how old was he at the time? A young man? Uh... Probably around fifty. Oh, so this is not when he was a kid. No, no, no. Yeah. No, he was he was quite famous by then. Okay. So his family attended your synagogue? Just him. Oh, I thought you said to visit his mother and his brother. Yeah, but he would come to the synagogue. Oh, so he would come on his own. He had some childhood friends mm-hmm. that he would visit. They were still friends. Yeah, it was very nice. Was he very involved in Judaism? I know for for a minute there it seemed he was driven. Everything he does is driven. Right. <laughs> <laughs> He's an intense guy. Yeah. But he still is. He still is. And you still maintain that relationship then? Not really, because his mother passed away and he stopped coming to Minnesota. So, But I think he puts on Tefillin every day. So is that something you got started with him? Yeah. Do you have, yeah. Do you have any stories that you could share about uh, that experience? Or? Not that he would approve of. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's good discretion, I suppose, then. So you moved to Minnesota, just you, your wife, and a baby, and the Jewish community there, or at least in terms of uh, the Jewish community as you knew it, you grew up in, did not exist. There was no uh, presence of Hasidic Jewry, was there? There was no Hasidic Jewry. There was some orthodoxy, okay, but it was basically an older generation. The young people were not. So that was our job. So you started from scratch. I, I was not the first Chabad 
emissary to Minnesota, I joined the guy who was already there. And is he still there? He's still there. Okay. It's a one-way ticket. When a shliach, when a Chabad guy comes out to a community, it's a one-way ticket. A shliach means an emissary. Emissary of the Rebbe. Of the Rebbe. So to be called a shliach, it means that the Rebbe sent you a certain place. So once he sends you there, you're there. That's it. No switching spots? Rarely. I mean, sometimes it's necessary, but it's a one-way ticket. What about your kids? Do they get to stay in Minnesota, or do they get to? Like, it's a, you know, I, I like Minnesota, but I... Yeah. Uh, one, one son stayed in Minnesota. The rest are all over the place. So who sends them now out as emissaries? The headquarters, the office in New York. So they're like, oh, there's an opening in Zimbabwe. Uh, there, there is a, there is a Chabad in Zimbabwe. Is there really? Yes. <laughs> Even in Iceland, that was the latest. The latest one. Yeah. One moment. I figured as much. We're being spied on. Did you hear that? Do you know what that is? No. It's a HomePod, so it's like um, you can talk to it, and it'll like, here, hey Siri, what's the weather today? It's currently partly cloudy and 62 degrees in Los Angeles. Expect cloudy skies starting in the afternoon. I thought Today's it was Alexa. 71 degrees. She, has, and she just keeps going. My weather data is provided by the Weather Channel. Thank you. I think it's a very non-feminist uh, thing because you're constantly bossing around a female, you know, and just telling her to do things. And there's no please or thank you or anything. I bring it up to you because I know you've written about uh, relationships. Oh, yeah. Well, what, what inspired that? Okay, so uh, when I got to Minnesota, we, uh, on a whim, decided to offer a crash course on Judaism for women. And it started in 1971. It's been going ever since. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, close to 30,000 women have come through. And of course, the topic, sooner or later turns to family, marriage, divorce. You know. In the 70s, life was crazy, but it was always, always a hot topic. So there was a lot of, a lot of thinking, a lot of debating, and a lot of you know, really getting into the heart of the issue, past all the pop psychology stuff. And with the wisdom of Torah, with the wisdom of, of Chabad philosophy, what, what do we have to offer in the area, the arena of intimacy? And it turns out, just this recent book I got published, it is so exciting. People are just, yeah. Why didn't anybody tell me this before? I started reading the book. It's called The Joy of Intimacy. It seems like a big theme is joy. We talked about your question to the Rebbe, which was uh, how to remember things, and that was came from joy. You know, that was the piece of advice that you said changed things for you. Yeah, anything you do without joy is not going not gonna to fly. Yeah. So joy has to accompany any good project, any important thing. It's got to be. But the definition of intimacy has been lost or forgotten or, or never taught. And I think, I think there's a crisis. And I realized it when talking to couples who are, for all practical purposes, happily married, and yet they feel completely alone in the world. 
each of them, which is a terrible feeling. In England, they now consider that to be an illness. What do they call it? Loneliness. Oh. But it's an illness because it weakens your immune system. And then you're vulnerable to every, every flu and every germ. So it, it is really a crisis. Uh, children suffer from it because if parents feel all alone in the world, where are the kids going to get their security from? Mm -hmm. And love, which we worship in America, love doesn't help. Everybody thinks love will be the solution. We've tried it. More love, unconditional love, love and more. It's not working. It's not working. And it can't work. Love was never meant to replace intimacy. It's just an emotion. That itself is insecure. Love is an insecure emotion? All emotions are insecure. Okay. It's just a feeling. It can disappear tomorrow. Yeah. There's no security in that. So there are experts today who are saying that the emphasis on pleasure, which has been the emphasis for the last 20 years, it's a mistake. We don't need more pleasure. We have every pleasure in the world. I mean, we've, we have chocolate. <laughs> so we don't need more pleasure. Yeah. What we need out of our marriages is more closeness. That's what the experts are saying. Mm -hmm. That's closer to the truth, but it's still not the truth. Closeness is always closer. Yeah, closeness is a very nice thing. You don't have to be married for that. Yeah. Marriage means oneness, which is much deeper and much more uh, divine than closeness. So marriage is a divine institution. And if you take the divinity out of it, 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 it becomes shallow and empty. Because, you know, first of all, you have to be very idealistic to be married. There's no, there's no way around that. And what motivates idealism, of course, is, is sanctity, godliness. So the definition, here's, here's the definition of real intimacy. A man says, I love everything about my wife. Sounds great. But his wife wants a divorce. So something's, uh -huh. going, something's wrong here. He loves everything about his wife. So I say, uh, that's nice. Do you love her? He says, I love everything about her. I said, I know. Do you love her? He says, what about her? I said, nothing about her. Do you love her? Uh -huh. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. There's the tragedy. You can be happily married because you love everything about her. You never got to her. So she feels all alone in the world. So where's the distinction made? You love everything about the person. Wouldn't that cumulatively mean you love the person? No, that's the sad part. So then where's the, where's, where's the gap? Well, imagine a guy says, imagine. A guy says, I, I love you for your money. I want to marry you for your money. Right? What's wrong with that? Money is good. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with money. So why is that? Why is that bad? It's bad because it's a lie. It's not true. I don't love you for your money. I just love the money. I have to put up with you, mm -hmm. but I love the money. So if I marry you for your money. I'm not marrying you. Just marrying the money. I'm marrying the money. Yeah. 
And if the money disappears, what are you doing in my house? <laughs> okay. You, you don't belong here. Yeah. Same is true with love. I married you for love, which means I am married to love. I'm not married to you. So if you stop loving me or I stop loving you, what are you doing here? Who invited you? I just wanted love. So we really do worship love. We marry for love, which means we're married to love. And religiously, if you believe that God is love, who are you worshiping? You're worshiping God or you're worshiping love? We worship love. For most people, if God wasn't love, who needs him? So we're really deifying love. That's terrible. Because it doesn't work. Love is not a beast of burden. It can't carry a relationship. Mm -hmm. It's the spice. It's not the steak. So what is it that marriage is supposed to produce? Biblically, man should leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and become one. That's the purpose. If you haven't become one, you're not really married. So a guy says, I love everything about my wife, her money, her looks, her love, her sex, everything. That means you're married to her money, to her looks, to her, right? That's polygamy. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're married to too many things. Yeah. And sadly, she's not one of them. So you're married to everything about her except her. So the question is, when we're, talk, we're talking about who the individual is, or what the individual is that you're supposed to be. I almost feel like love is off limits now. You're not bonded. in love with, but bonded to. So the word belonging is a very powerful word. And we're, we're starved. We're malnourished when it comes. Where do you belong? Where do you belong? Don't tell me what you love. You can love chocolate. You don't belong to chocolate. Mm -hmm. Where do you belong? We're so confused. I don't, I don't know. And that's why love is like a substitute for belonging. Because we don't belong anywhere. It used to be you belong to your family. Of, you belong to your parents. That's where I belong. I don't mean belong like a possession. So imagine those moments where something you're experiencing is so perfect that you would like time to just stop and, you know, like a, like a still in a movie, uh -huh. just stop right there and keep it that way because this, this is perfect. Right? Home, marriage, spouse, that's what it's supposed to feel like. When you come home, you are where you belong. There's no better feeling than that. Love doesn't compare. When you know that this is where you belong and this is the person you belong with, of course you're going to love it. Then you add the spice. But first there has to be that belonging. So imagine you come home, you are where you belong, you're doing what you should be doing, and you're with the person you should be doing it with. That's heaven. Now, you may not love something about the person that you belong with or belong to. Mm -hmm. So what? So there's something I don't like. 
But I need you, and I have you. We belong. So coming home should feel that way. You're not coming home to who you love. There's something much more powerful. You're coming home to where you belong, which means there's no place else you ought to be, and there's no place else you'd rather be. There's nothing else you ought to be doing, and there's nothing else you would rather be doing, and there's no one else you should be with, and there's no one else you'd rather be with. In this confused world, where we're scatterbrained all over the place, that feeling, that is absolutely heaven. So heaven is a, is a sense of feeling like you're, you are where you're supposed to be. You finally got there. You are exactly where, and there's nothing else you ought to be or should be or want to be doing. Mm-hmm. That is so much more powerful than love. So here's my definition of intimacy. Intimacy is the ability that people have to contact the other person beyond all things. So if you can get all things out of the way, you will merge and become one. It's only things that get in the way. And shockingly, love is one of those things. It's a thing. You can have it, not have it. You can have more, you can have less. comes, it goes. Mm -hmm. It's an it. And the same is true with sexual pleasure. It's an it. Did you like it? Was it good? Are you good at it? Uh It's pornography. It's literally pornography. So if a man asks his wife, how was it? That is so vulgar. Who are you calling an it? It was just us. Where did an it come from? (laughs) Who let the it in? Uh (laughs) (laughs) Who let it in? There was just supposed to be us. So pornography means objectifying, right? Mm-hmm. An it is an object, not a person. There should be no it in a bedroom. A bedroom is a no-thing zone. Don't bring anything into the bedroom. So so I'm sure this could be misinterpreted as uh, you're saying, get rid of love, get rid of sex, get rid of uh, <laughs> money, the and you'll, tele- have a, you'll have a great... Get rid of the television in the bedroom, the computer, the desk. Get it out of there. So if you want a great relationship, get rid of everything that you know about a relationship, essentially. Yeah, we've been we've been misled terribly. Have you had struggles in your own marriage that you had to overcome? The struggle in marriage, if it's a real marriage, is always about something. And if it's about something, yeah, you work it out. You do without it, you get more of it, you fix it. It's an it. Mm -hmm. The the pain or the frustration is never from each other. Because having each other, I mean, that's perfect. Yeah. So here's here's a mind-boggling thought. And I think it's, it's important. What's with this Me Too stuff? What's with these men abusing women all over the place? in business and in, and in politics and in Hollywood. and what, what, What's going on? And what's the solution? So the fact that women are complaining, that makes sense. What's going to be the solution? Legislation? They can become illegal to look a, a woman in the eye? 
What, what are we going to do with this? This is scary. Mm-hmm. Now, some people say the problem is the abuse of power. That may be. We've always known power corrupts. And that's, yeah, that's an issue, you know, how to, how to discipline those in power. But in everything, not just in how they treat women, then there are people who say the problem is men have no respect for women. That's also a problem. And it's always been around. And for that, you have to find some kind of solution, right? But what's happening today is not that we're missing the point. Some of these guys who are being accused of all sorts of nasty stuff, they're decent people. They're not the scum of the earth. And if you ask them, have you no respect for women? They would say, what are you talking about? Of course I do. So then you say, so why did you do what you did? He says, and here's, here's the key. He said, what? It was nothing. So, yeah, so I said, I did, I touched her, I called it. It was nothing. There's no respect for intimacy. They respect women. They don't respect intimacy. So you ask, how could you do that? That? That's nothing. Come on, it was kind of fun, whatever. So look at what we did this to ourselves. Nobody in his right mind would advocate not respecting women. Even those who don't respect women. Nobody in their right mind. Yes. Certainly people who are not in their right mind might. Right. Yeah. But the question is, are these people but, in the right mind? No. No, no official, there was no official endorsement of disrespecting women. But there definitely was a concerted effort to teach people to lose respect for intimacy. Where did you see that effort come from? Started in the 60s. Free love. Free? No commitment, no attachment, no. What is that? Recreational sex. You see? You've reduced the holiest thing people can do to to nonsense. So is being alone in a room together man and a woman? Is that an intimacy? Nah, she's not my type. You can't fool Mother Nature. Being alone in a closed room is an intimacy. If you don't feel it, it's because you're dull. (laughs) But intimacy can't depend on your mood. Like, if I was turned on to her, then it's intimate. If I'm not turned on, it's not. Come on. Everything depends on your feeling. That's where we misunderstand each other. I didn't think it was anything. And men and women are equally guilty. Holding hands means nothing. A touch means nothing. A hug means nothing. A kiss means nothing. Being alone in a room means nothing. Being naked means nothing. It's nothing. Well, what's something is the point. That's right. Eventually, nothing is anything unless you intended it to be. So even married couples, you come home, you go into the bedroom, you close the door, you get undressed, and uh, nothing. Nothing. So what's happened in our world is that sex, it's lost all meaning. 
There's nothing awesome about it. it. Used to be awesome. There's nothing awesome. It's like, yeah, you want, I want, whatever. It, we've reduced it down to soup. But you are putting down soup in this scenario. <laughs> Probably get, get sued by Campbell. <laughs> no, soup is good food. But it's not awesome. Sex used to be intimate, and that made it awesome. So what's the solution for the general public to restore intimacy? There's one little simple exercise or experiment. Never be intimate with the lights on in a, in a room with light, only in the dark. Just that alone, it'll blow your mind. Because if you think about it, being intimate with the lights on, where did that come from? Edison? Pornography. Right? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to film it, you got to turn the lights on. It's pornography. Remember the shows like I Love Lucy or the, the Honeymooners? When they showed the couple about to have intimacy, the last thing they did was turn off the lamp. And it went dark, and then you knew they are having intimacy. Because that's the way normal people do it. And the reason is, really, if the lights are on, you're going to see. What are you going to see? Something. You're going to see something. That's all an eye can see is things. You can't see intimacy. So whatever you're seeing is going to distract you from the intimacy. And that's why just this alone, I mean, there are many other things you can do to enhance, to, to, to protect the intimacy from becoming just sex, which today is soup. <laughs> <laughs> so this one thing, turn the lights off. It's amazing the effect that that would have. I love this subject, and I think we'll come back to it. But I, before I get into the philosophy with you, I wanted to go back a little bit to your story. Um, were there th were there points where you struggled with any of it? I would say, yeah, there was a there were on every subject on on uh, religion, on God, on who I am, where I belong, what is marriage, what is family. These are very intense questions. And if you don't question, you never get to the answer. So I remember we were 15 years old, all of us completely committed, observing, practicing Jews, and we're 15. And we're sitting there during the break in school and we're saying, why do we do this? Why do we need this? And it's so healthy. So we talked about it, we thought about it, we looked around, we said, yeah, this is pretty good. <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's, you've got to have that, that soul shattering question, not crisis, no, not challenge. Or maybe it is a challenge, but it's an internal challenge, not a threatening challenge. Cause you got, you have to own it. You're given something. That's the problem. We take marriage for granted. Yeah, you'll get married, you'll love each other, you'll have some kids. No. 
We don't love each other and we don't want to have kids. So we can't take things for granted anymore. And we never should. So you raise your child to be observant and to keep the mitzvot and so on. And they think it's your project. And one day they grow up and they say, you know, I don't, not my project. That's a failure. At some point, everybody's got to ask themselves, is this my thing? Do I belong here? You better come up with an answer. Well, I mean, for me, I remember having that exact thought of uh, at, at, at a point in my early 20s where I was like, why am I doing all this? And I think uh, this was, almost, just as you put it, was my parents' project, and I'm not into it. And then I left it for like 11 years. Yeah. And uh, only by um, uh, miracle did I wind up back to it. But uh, I wonder if uh, most people come to that second point where they just conclude, not, not for me. What would you say to them? Well, you see that all over the place. How painful is it for parents when a child says, ah, you got your life, I got mine, I don't belong here. Is that not a stab in the heart? You don't belong here? Or how painful is it to a child when the parents say, get out of the house, you don't belong here. Not I don't love you, that we can live with, but you don't belong here? Well, then where do I belong? That, that is, that's bloodshed. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's absolute murder. So when you discover or rediscover where you belong, that's life-saving. So it's a tragedy when people feel they don't belong where they do belong, or people think they belong where they don't belong. That, that, that is the ultimate crisis in human life. Find your place. Be where you belong. Be with the people you belong to. That's not stifling. That's totally liberating. Because once you're where you belong, you, you, can, you can be spontaneous only after you know that you are where you belong. And that's up for individual interpretation and where you belong. Yeah. You better have some wisdom. Somebody said to me, you know, I don't need you to tell me how to have sex. I don't need God to tell me how to have sex. What's with all the laws? And the answer is, nobody's telling you how to have sex. You want to have sex, you're on your own. Figure it out. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a genius. Yeah. But if you want to have intimacy, you need a little advice. You need a little wisdom. Because it's so easy. I mean, look at it. Look at, look at where we're at. It is so easy for a careless person to turn intimacy into just plain sex. So here's the point. If you stop and think about it, you make babies by being intimate, right? Sex produces babies. It gives life. It's not recreational. It's the source of life. In order to create life or reproduce life, you have to invest your most intense excitement because life is excitement. 
Life is pleasure. When you share the intense pleasure of your life, you produce another life. And that's why it is the intense pleasure that it is. But if the pleasure gets distracted and you're not finding pleasure in the intimacy, you're finding pleasure in the conquest. You're finding pleasure in the, in the ego boost. Another conquest. I got another, you know. Or any other reason. If you're finding other pleasure, you're ruining the intimacy. Intimacy is its own pleasure, and it's the greatest pleasure. So we really need to regain the awe and the respect that we had for intimacy. A touch is significant. Being alone together is significant. What advice would you give to people who are victims of uh, abuse? How do they find... Here's the good news. You can only be abused in things. Something was abused, not you. You were hurt. You were not damaged. Things get damaged. A human being doesn't get damaged. So they'd have to disconnect themselves in a way from their body in order to... We have to disconnect from things anyway to get to intimacy. So we now have our uh, our philosopher. I feel like we're warmed up. Do you feel warmed up here? I'm just switching hats. <laughs> Put on the thinking cap and let's do it. Uh, the philosopher who Alex picked out for you is a fellow named Thomas Nagel. Have you heard of him? Nagel or Nagley? Nagel. And he says, what you have in common is that you wrote a book on helping couples in the bedroom, which is what we talked about a bit. And so he picked a philosopher of sexuality. Wow. So here's a, a bit about our fellow uh, Thomas. He was born July 4th, 1937, and uh, seems he's still alive, thank God. He's an American philosopher and university professor of philosophy and law emeritus at New York University, where he taught from 1980 till 2016. His main areas of philosophical interest are philosophy of mind, Political philosophy and ethics, Nagel or Nagel is well known for his critique of material reductionist accounts of the mind, particularly in his essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? from 1974, and his contributions to, uh, I don't know this word, denotological, mirror that? I don't know, and liberal and political theory in The Possibility of Altruism, 1970, and subsequent writings. He continued to critique the reductionism in mind of Cosmos in 2012, which he argues against the neuro-Darwinian view of the emergence of consciousness. And Alex uh, gave us a synopsis here where he says, um, religious people say that sex is perverse and less tied to love, marriage, and procreation. They point to animals saying they always intend to procreate. So sex for sex's sake uh, breaks a natural order. Uh, sort of, we kind of talked about that a little bit, right? Um, he says, Nagel 
says meaningless sex is natural for humans because they are rational beings. So this is a different argument that he would have. Um, in a sexual encounter, each person becomes aware of the feelings as well as the other person's feelings. People are bound by the rules of empathy. Therefore, sex is only perverse if they do not acknowledge mutual desire. In example, rape. Sex is complicated enough without insisting that it needs to be tied to other ideas. So, first of all, what do you think of, of what he's saying? It's a little confused. He's trying to say that um, sex for the sake of sex is wrong because it should be intimacy. But he's not getting there. He's not getting to that point. It is natural for people to want to have just plain sex. It's as natural as eating junk food. Yeah, people want junk food. They love junk food. But it doesn't satisfy a need. It's just pleasure. And that's a bottomless pit. You can't satisfy what isn't a need. Pleasure is not a need. Um, you can never have enough. You can never have enough because it's not feeding anything, like junk food. So junk food feeds the mouth. It doesn't feed hunger. So two things happen. First of all, it's unhealthy. The stuff is unhealthy. And secondly, you're depriving yourself of what you really need. A human being really needs intimacy. It's a genuine human need. We're not quite human if we're alone. Even God, I'm going to be philosophical about this. God created the world for what? Come on, it's got to be the ultimate question. Is it, are you suggesting so he wouldn't be alone? It's a trick question. When you say, what did he create the world for? He didn't create the world for a what. He doesn't need stuff. <laughs> George Carlin's routine. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need stuff. He doesn't need things. He's perfect, which means he's missing no thing. So he created the world not to get something, but to have someone, in order to have someone beside himself. Now, here's listen to this beautiful thing. If I'm perfect and I don't need anything, or I don't need anything because I just don't care anymore. Either way, mm -hmm. I don't need anything. I just want you in my life. Right? So all I want is just you. And for some reason, I can't have you. What am I missing? Nothing you're missing. That's intimacy. I'm not missing anything. I don't want anything. But if you're not in my life, what am I missing? I'm missing you. That's how God created the world. He's perfect. He doesn't need anything. But it's only when you're perfect can you really need someone and not something from that someone. So to sum it up, Marriage, for example, is not a give and take. 
these expressions are so misleading and damaging. There is no take. If you take, you're abusing. You're there to take. It's a give and give. It's a give and receive. Receiving is probably the more important part. And that's, that's the female role. Receiving means nurturing. You come into my space, you will blossom. That's called nurturing. Nurturing is not an act. It's not a thing. You know, you come home to a, to a good home, to a, just walking in there, you, you're nurtured. Mother doesn't have to do anything to nurture. It's her space. It's the fact that she envelops you, that she invites you in. She receives you, and that gives you life. Like the womb. The womb doesn't do anything. But it is so receptive, it gives you life. So the, the man should be the giver. The woman should be the receiver. And to a man, that receptivity is absolutely irresistible. That's why they become one. Because they both shed their surface tension. Like two drops of water next to each other. Mm -hmm. For Pete's sake, your water flow. <laughs> Why are you two separate drops sitting there like surface tension? Well, break the tension. Get rid of the tension. You will become one. That's that's intimacy. So what he's saying is that. Sex without a purpose, sex without some... No, no, you don't redeem sex. Sex is what it is. It's junk food. You'll enjoy it no matter how many times you do it, but you don't need it, so it will not satisfy. Today, I think we've reached a point where we don't want entertainment anymore. We don't want pleasure anymore. We need to connect. We need to belong we need to never feel alone in the world again. And that comes from intimacy, not from, not from love, not from sex. And we know this. We know this in our bones. All right. We have three quotes that uh, I always ask the guest to read the quote and discuss it. Would you do the honors for us? All right. Desire involves not merely a perception of its object, but perception of oneself. Desire is a very selfish thing. By definition, it's what I want. <laughs> so even, even the, the, little, the little sentence, I love you, the most selfish little sentence in the world. This is me, see? I love you. Now you know something about me. It doesn't say anything about you. Because I happen to desire you. But if you're not available... I'll find something else because I got to be me and I got to have my desire. So if not you, somebody else. It's a nasty little sentence, really. What we should say is, you mean something in my life, so you I love. Because it's you, not because I want love. I'm not trying to get something from you the fulfillment of my desire. I'm trying in intimacy. I'm trying to shed my 
surface tension that keeps me stuck in me, and I'm trying to make contact with you. I'm dissolving my desire into this oneness that we're going to... So if both are dissolving their desires, then they bond. So desire involves not merely a perception of its object, but a perception of oneself. Real intimacy means you've gotten out of yourself. And that's what we so desperately want these days. That's what people say. Leave me alone. You get what they're saying? Leave the me out of it. I have enough of me. Get me beyond me. Leave me alone. That's a really nice way to look at leave me alone. Yeah. Leave me out of this. (laughs) Let's just talk about what is. Get away from me. Yeah. I don't but, think anybody ever sees it that way you know, when but, but somebody that's says deep Leave down me inside. That's what we're that's what we're hurting from. Don't try to sell me. <laughs> don't know uh-huh. another I need another salesman to tell me how my life can be better. I've had it up to here. Stop selling me. Give me something bigger than me that I can dissolve into. You know, the pop psychology, you must love yourself before you love someone else. No, if I love myself, then I don't need you. (laughs) Then if I involve myself with you, it's only because I love myself and you have something I want. It's not true. To love someone else means you got past your own love. You know what's really fascinating? There's this guy who is worth a hundred billion dollars, an individual. Mm-hmm. He has a hundred billion dollars. In his wildest imagination, could he possibly believe that it's all meant for him? If he lived a thousand years, he couldn't spend it no matter how hard he tried. Right. So is it possible that it's all meant for him? Obviously not. Right. And that's why these guys who are worth this, they want to give it away. Because it doesn't make sense that all of that was meant for them. Yeah. But that's the truth of life. You have love. You think it was meant for you. You have wisdom and information, and you think it was meant for you. It doesn't make sense. Whatever we have is meant to be given, not kept don't keep your money under your mattress. <laughs> Invest it, give it. Right. No, no, I want to have money. You want to have money? That doesn't make any sense. That's why I always try to get rid of it as soon as I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there were people, holy people, who would never keep money in their possession overnight. Because during the night, I don't need it. Somebody to, else must. I'm going to have to tell that to my wife next time she <laughs> says, well, why do you keep buying stuff on Amazon? Next quote. I'm holy. That's why. That's it. Absurdity is not a negative thing. It is one of the most human things about us because it's a manifestation of our most advanced and interesting characteristics. It's true. But I would put it a little differently. The nature of a human being that makes him different from an animal, a plant, and a mineral. The mineral is content being a mineral. The vegetable is content being a vegetable. And an animal, if you don't disturb it, perfectly content being an animal. 
The nature of a human being is that he's never content being human. What does a human want to be? Are you saying more godlike Some, or something more? A human being is not content with what he's given. He wants to feel like he accomplished or contributed something. Is that a good or a bad thing? Wonderful. It's what makes us human. If we are content being human, then we're an animal. The nature of a human being is he doesn't want to be what he was given. He wants to become something that was not given. So the definition is a human being is never content being human. A human being does not want to be human because that's not an accomplishment. So, so the question is, yeah. if you want to be something other than human, you have an option. Either go down, become an animal. Or go up. Or go up and become divine. Not an angel, because a human being is greater than an angel. Yeah, take that, angels. <laughs> angels <laughs> in the outfield. <clears throat> Next. Live life in the full complexity of what one is. This is more contradictory a male storm of impulses than is apparent to one who pretends to be civilized. See? That's what I was afraid of. Being civilized is a pretense. Don't do that. Live life in its raw form. Like, be a barbarian. No, that's an animal. That's the way an animal lives. I do what I feel like, I go by instinct. Nobody can stop me. It's confusion. What he's really trying to say is, don't be civilized. But that's an accomplishment. You're going to go to your grave and say, well, at least I was civilized. Nothing. That's nothing. You were born civilized. What have you accomplished? So don't be a really decent person. That's not an accomplishment. You mean, I went through 80 years of life and I did not become an animal. Nothing to be proud of. So no, don't be a barbarian. Go up and not go down is what go you're saying. Go up. It was actually Nietzsche, I think, a Nazi philosophy, that a human being in his healthy state is a barbarian. And if you come and tell me to be civilized, you're making me sick. And the Jews who brought conscience to the world are making the world sick. I should be able to do whatever I need to do without any guilt. And so they wanted to get rid of the Jews. They were trying to kill the conscience. So, like the Nazi who worked in the concentration camp, he spent his day liquidating people. Isn't that a nice word? Liquidating he shoved them into the ovens. He shoveled the ashes out of the ovens. And then he went home to his wife like a really civilized, decent human being. <laughs> See that? Yeah. Don't, no. No conscience because, hey, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing what needs to be done. Got to get rid of these people. I said to my wife, I thought my theory was that they were trying to not to destroy the Jews, but to destroy God. Yes. Because you know, if the other religions came from, from Judaism, if you get rid of Judaism, it, 
you lost most of the religions, and and then you know. Yes. And why destroy God? For because more. he interferes with the barbaric or barbarian nature of a human being. So if I need to kill somebody, why should I feel guilty about it? And that's why, in a, to a certain degree, the, the, the justification. I was just following orders. I, I was just doing what we're supposed to do. You know, it had to get done. No. Yeah. <laughs> that's a barbarian. And they thought that that is a perfect human being. An ubermensch is a man without a conscience. It's the, it's the addition of uber that makes the mensch less of a mensch. That's why I use Lyft. <laughs> Yeah, Lyft sounds more idealistic. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, well, it was really uh, wonderful having you here. Um, and and the book is called The Joy of Intimacy. And my wife read your first book and loved it, which is called Why Doesn't Anyone Blush Anymore? And that one is also dealing in intimacy? Not directly, but with relationship. So you are the relationship guru. So far. Yeah. And, um, and uh, boy, I, I guess to have 14 children, you, you would have to be. Mm. Uh, do you, I, and are you close with all of your children still? They're fantastic. See, philosophy, uh, books, teachings, speaking, preaching, you never know. You never know. Are you right on target? Are you saying it all right? Do you get it right? Do you understand it right? I don't But these kids... Nobody's going to take that away from me. That I know I got right. So, What's the trick? You know, I plan with God's help to have kids soon. Is there any advice you have for me? Kids are innocent, beautiful, and godly. Stay out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just leave. Don't is that the, is that the don't plan? Don't ruin it. You know? <laughs> the other trick is get them a good mother. And then you can retire. Okay. <laughs> so basically, your whole advice for me is don't be involved. I'm going to just mess it up. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> Rabbi Manus Friedman, wonderful having you here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you again to Rabbi Manus Friedman. The book is called The Joy of Intimacy. Go pick up a copy. He's obviously got a lot of great insight into intimacy and perhaps could save your marriage or relationship or mindset. I don't know. He might save you. Go get a book. And thank you guys for tuning in. As always, I ask you, if you can make a donation, go to moderndayphilosophers.net. There's a button. You click it. You donate. You help me. I keep making podcasts. Hopefully I help you. And the world goes around a little smoother. Okay. And then you could also leave a nice comment on iTunes and five stars. And that would help. You know, we got some really nice comments on there lately. And then the most recent one is not a nice comment. I'm like, why does that have to be the most recent one? Like, somebody fix that. Somebody go in there and make the most recent one a good one. It's nice to have a good one at the top. Uh, but they're mostly good. And I, I really feel warm when I read the good ones and when I read the bad ones, I'm like, I get hurt. I get a little hurt. I take it too personally. Um, and then uh, send an email, please, to thecomical at yahoo.com. 
and uh, say hi, because I'd love to hear from you. And if you ever have and you haven't heard back, send another one, because that means I didn't get it or it got lost in somewhere. I always write back. And if I haven't written back to you, it's, uh, it's not purposefully. There's something has gone horribly wrong. So please uh, resend it, because uh, everybody deserves a reply. I, I, I try to say hello and reply to everybody who writes me. Because it means a lot to me. You take time out of your day to write to me. And I try to reciprocate that because it's important. All right, everybody. Enjoy life until the next episode of Modern Day Philosophers. And uh, I'm still like in this jazzy, jazzy mood. I saw Herbie Hancock play last night at the LA Phil at the Walt Disney Concert Hall here in Los Angeles, California. And that's not an impression of Herbie Hancock because I don't really know how he sounds when he talks, but. I know how he sounds when he plays, and man, he was good. Uh, still got jazz on the brain. Love it. Love that jazz. Go get, go get some jazz if you're not listening to jazz. You should have a little jazz in your life. You know, I realized the other day, whatever music is playing in the background, because I was feeling really sad. I was, I'll just tell you this real quick. I was feeling really sad. I was in my kitchen cooking, and I'm like, why am I so sad? And I realized I had sad music playing in the background. I'm like, well, if I was scoring a film... I would want this scene to be happy. I would put happy music. I'm scoring. When you put music on, you're scoring your life. So score your life with upbeat, happy music. I recommend some good jazz. Score your life properly. If you put on angry music, you're scoring an angry life movie. Just a thought. All right, everybody. Be well. Thanks for tuning in. Oh, wait. One more thing. A special happy birthday to our very own Alex Fasella who researches all the philosophers for this show since episode number one. Happy birthday, Alex Fasella, from all of us being me and Logan here at Modern Day Philosophers Podcast. We love you. We're grateful to you. Have a great and amazing year. And everybody out there, you can go and wish Alex a happy birthday on Twitter by tweeting at him at A Fasella. That's A-F-O-S-S-E-L-L-A, at A Fasella. Happy birthday, Alex.